Let's turn our Bibles, Genesis chapter 19 this morning, Genesis chapter 19. Man, I just want to say how good the Lord is. I was thinking when we were singing uh, that second song in the choir and uh, singing about our Savior and Him going to Calvary and dying all alone. You know, stop and think about that. As a believer, we never have to be alone. But He went and died alone. He said on the cross of Calvary, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? And uh, you've heard me say this before, but that's a rhetorical question because that's the only kind God can ask. An omniscient God can only ask on, uh, can only ask rhetorical questions. And he knew, he knew why God had forsaken him, but a rhetorical question is asked uh, for the benefit of the person it's asked to. Well, he was asking it to God the Father, and so we know it wasn't for his benefit or for those that are in the hearing of the question, that they might stop and consider and weigh the answer to that. Well, guess what? That's you and me. We're in the hearing of that question. And he asked the question, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is, he did that for you and for me. God forsook him so that he'd never have to forsake us. And he died on the cross of Calvary uh, alone so that you and I would never have to be alone, so that we could know God personally. Just what a Savior we have. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, nothing I can say this morning will really do justice to how good of a Savior He is. I can't put into words. I wish I could. You'll just have to get to know Him, and then you'll know, because I, I, I can't. I wish I could. <laughs> It'd make things a lot simpler, but I, I can't. But I can tell you that, oh, He's precious. There's nobody like Him. There's nobody ever loved you like He loves you. Nobody ever has done for you like He's done for you. You don't even know all the things that He's done for you. If you knew, man, it'd take you all of eternity to just talk about it. And We don't have all of eternity this morning, so I'm not going to talk all about it. But I'm just going to say He's a precious Savior. And if you don't know Him, you're missing out on everything. If you don't really know Him, and I'm not talking about go to church occasionally. I'm not talking about if you were filling out a survey and it asked whether you use a, you know, a, a Muslim or a Buddhist or what, and you, and you check the Christian. But I'm saying know Him. If you don't know Him personally as your Savior and have a relationship with Him, you're missing out on what life is about. You're missing out on the greatest thing there is in life. And all I can say is He's precious. He's precious. Genesis chapter 19 this morning. I've got quite a bit of scripture to read, but I know you're more spiritual than me, so that won't bother you. And uh, But I'd like to be reading in verse number one. This, of course, is the story of Lot and his family in the city of Sodom and God's destruction of that place. But God laid a thought on my heart I want to share with you this morning. Genesis chapter 19, verse number one. The Bible says, and there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. And Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. And he said, Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and ye shall rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, but we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them greatly. And they turned in unto him, entered into his house, and he made them a feast, did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. By the way, interesting, it's the first mention of unleavened bread in your Bible. But before they lay down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where is, are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us, we may know them. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. 
and said, I pray you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known man. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said again, This one fellow came in to sojourn, and he will needs be a judge. Now will we deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. The men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides, son-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city? them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. When the morning arose, then the angels hastened Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. And while he lingered, the men laid hold on his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. And it came to pass, when they had brought them forth abroad, that he said, Escape for thy life, look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. Lot said unto them, O oh, oh, not so, my Lord. Behold now, thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy unto me in saving my life, and I cannot escape the mountain, lest some evil take me and I die. Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? My soul shall live. And he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow this city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou become thither. And therefore the name of that city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. And then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife, Lot's wife, looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be in the house, God. Lord, I've already enjoyed myself so much just being here today and thinking on your goodness and your mercy and, and Lord, how much love you've shown to us. I'm so thankful to have a Savior like you. I don't deserve you, God. I don't deserve a moment of your attention or your mercy, your compassion or your grace. But, Lord, you've not given me a moment of it. You've given me an eternity of it. Lord, I could just never say what a precious, wonderful God you are, and I could never say thank you enough for all you've done in my life. But, Lord, we have come today with a need in our lives We've come, every one of us, because we need to hear from you, because we're not satisfied, Lord, because we desire for you to speak to us, to deal in our hearts and to work in us that which brings you glory. For we know, Lord, that our life is lacking without you. So I pray that you'd take these next few moments and consecrate them to your cause and purpose and use them for your glory and honor and work in us that which would please you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When I approach unto Genesis chapter 19, if you, if you don't have a lot of, of background and understand some of the things that have
that up to this moment in the Word of God, you may be a little at a loss as to some of the things that are transpiring in this passage. So there's a few questions I would answer before we get to our message. The first question you might be asking is, Preacher, what was Sodom? The Bible describes Sodom and Gomorrah and describes this place over and over and over again in this passage of Scripture. And in fact, not just in this, but in several passages around it. And then on through the Word of God, it is referenced over and over again. Well, the city of Sodom was one of five cities in the Vale of Siddam. This was a sort of metropolis area. And all these cities, though distinct unto themselves, had commerce one with another and had common... Uh, defense and interest one with another. But of these five cities, Sodom was the greatest of these cities. And in fact, I would say this, that in the ancient world, Sodom was a great city. It was a prosperous city. It was a powerful city. It was a sought-after place. It was the place that was in vogue and in fashion. Uh, All of the most powerful men of that day uh, were from Sodom. All of the big events that were taking place would have been in Sodom. In fact, if you were trying to find a place you wanted to live, you wouldn't want to live outside of the Vale of Siddam. You would have done everything you could to find a nice house in Sodom. It was a great city in its day. But when we read this passage of Scripture, it is apparent to us that not only was Sodom a great city, Sodom was a godless city. It was a city of deep iniquity and unrighteousness. I'll not get into the details of some of the things that are transpiring in this chapter. I trust most of us can read the Word of God and take the meaning and understanding. But what they're seeking to do and what they're engaging in and practicing in the city of Sodom was the deepest levels of debauchery and wickedness and degeneracy and depravity. In fact, to this day, the biblical terminology for a person that is a homosexual is a sodomite. And that harkens back to some of the sexual practices of the city of Sodom. It was a place of great depravity and great wickedness and great lewdness. In fact, I would say this, it was the kind of place that no child of God belonged. It was the kind of place that no believer belonged. So Sodom was a great city, but it was also a godless city. But I'm also aware in this passage that though this is historical and it is describing and detailing the destruction of a literal real historical place, I'm also mindful of the fact that Sodom in many ways represented some things. Now again, let me say clearly, it was a real place, a literal place, a historical place, a geographic place. It literally existed in time. But when you read about Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible, you'll find that it evokes certain ideas and embodies certain concepts. I would say, number one this morning, that Sodom embodied the world's sin. It was the most sinful place in that region you could be. It was the kind of place where nothing was against the law, where nothing was against societal norms. It was what we might call a permissive place. Here's the terminology that is common in vogue with the world today. Sodom was a tolerant place. It was a tolerant place. In fact, we find that they would tolerate anything except the Lord's presence in Sodom. The only thing that got them upset was when the angels of the Lord showed up. Then they wanted to abuse them and destroy them and murder them. But as long as you were willing to engage in the wickedness of the world, hey, Sodom was the place for you. It's amazing the utter corruption and corrosion of our civilization that has happened over the last hundred years or 150 years. But I'm talking about it has hit warp speed in the last five to ten years. 
Whereas things that we all instinctively know and understand are wrong and are wicked, are unnatural and are against God, are now not just permitted, but they are praised. They are not just allowed, they are applauded. In many ways, we are living in a modern Sodom in our society today. Sodom represented the world's sin. It was the kind of place where any pleasure could be found, any lust could be satisfied for whatever price the market demanded. But I would say, number two, it not only embodied the, embodied the world's sin, Sodom embodied the world's system. And you say, preacher, what do you mean? What's the distinction? Sodom had a different value system than Abraham and Lot's family had. The things that mattered in Sodom should not have mattered to a follower of God. And the things that mattered to a follower of God would not have mattered in Sodom. When we talk about their system, we mean their values, we mean their desires, we mean their priorities, and we mean their plans. Can I remind you, we live in a world still today that is hostile to the Bible, to Bible Christianity, and to the Christ of the Bible. If you don't think the world's a system, man, sometimes just stop and pay attention to how they're all singing the same song and saying the same things. Stop and notice how there is uniformity in the things that are permitted and the things that are allowed. Stop and look if you don't think this world is systematic in the exertion of its pressure and of its influence. Stop and consider the universal chorus of debauchery and of wickedness that is applauded at every level of society. You say, preacher, well, it's not affecting everything. Oh, yes. Hey, listen, they're teaching it to the little ones in school. They're teaching it to the middle schoolers. They're teaching it to the high schoolers. They're teaching it in college. doesn't matter where you go. Wickedness and sin and unrighteousness are running rampant in this world. Why is that, preacher? Because it is a system that has been put in place. And Sodom represented the world's system. It represented a different set of values than what Abraham's family had come to appreciate through their knowledge and awareness of God. So we've answered what Sodom was and what Sodom represented. But we then must ask this question. What do we learn from this passage about this man by the name of Lot? Lot is the nephew of Abraham. He is just one generation removed from pagan worship. Abraham's family back in Ur of the Chaldees are still pagan worshipers. Abraham has been called out of that spiritual darkness and has been brought into the light of who God truly is. And whenever Abraham left his family to follow God by faith, he had a nephew by the name of Lot that followed him. Boy, that tells us something about Lot. I'll tell you this. Hey, listen, what you go to does not tell you nearly as much as what you leave. The things that you abandon in life tell you as much as the things that you embrace in life. And Lot, he abandoned that pagan worship and began to follow his uncle Abraham because he believed that Abraham had truly heard from God and knew who God was. When we come to Genesis 19, though, Lot does not look like a believer. He does not look like a saved individual. He does not look like a follower of God. But when we study our Bible, we learn that, in fact, Lot was a believer in God. What can we learn about Lot in the Word of God before we get into our message? Well, there's three things. Number one, I would say this. Lot was a saved man. 
Now, I understand that that term saved has a distinctly New Testament connotation and background to it. But for simplified purposes, you could say he was a believer. You could say he had righteousness imputed unto him. You could say he was a follower of God, a worshiper of Jehovah. But I think we all understand what we mean when we say Lot was a saved man. He had placed his faith in God and God had imputed righteousness unto him. And when we read this passage of Scripture, though there's certainly an application to the lost man, that is not the primary application of this chapter. Because Lot was a saved individual. Listen to what Peter says about him in Second Peter chapter 2. says that God, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that should live after should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot. Now, that doesn't mean only Lot, because we know he delivered not only Lot, but his wife and his daughters as well. But it's saying that Lot was a just man. In the context of Second Peter 2, it's talking about the ungodly and the just and saying that God delivered just Lot or Lot, a just man, says about him that he vexed was vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So if we're going to understand this passage, the first thing we need to understand is Lot is a believer in God. He is a saved individual. You say, preacher, is it possible for a saved man to live in this world system? Absolutely it is. Preacher, is it possible for a saved man to get involved in this world sin? Absolutely it is. And while there are a thousand anecdotal uh, examples that you and I could give, we don't have to depart from Scripture to see it. We can look at Lot and recognize that here is a man that is righteous. People say, well, preacher, he didn't have the Holy Ghost within him. I understand that. It was before Calvary, before the empty tomb. But the Bible still says he vexed his righteous soul. It still bothered him. His conscience smote him. Lot was a saved man, bothered by what he was living in, but still he lived in it. He was a saved man. But then I would say number two, we learn this about Lot. Lot was a sojourning man. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, when we study what happened and how Lot wound up here, it becomes apparent to me that Lot did not intend on moving to Sodom. And he did not intend on staying in Sodom. You remember what they said in chapter 19, verse 9, when the men, the mob outside are talking to Lot. They said this, this one fellow came into sojourn. Now, sojourn means to journey for a little while. Amen. Uh, It's a little it's it's a hair between a vacation and an abduction. Somebody say amen to that. Sojourn. It's I'm just going to go in and just be there for a little while. And Lot, when he went to Sodom, he didn't intend to stay there. He only meant to visit. But can I say this? Most believers only intend to visit sin or to visit the world. I don't know that I've ever known, and I'm not saying it's never happened in the history of humankind, but I don't know that I've ever personally known a Christian who looked me in the eye and said, Preacher, I'm giving up on living for Christ. I'm going to the drink. I'm going to the needle. I'm going to promiscuity. I'm going to sin. I'm going to worldliness. I'm done with this thing of living for God. I'm giving up. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that. Now, I've heard a lot of people say, Well, Preacher, it's just one drink. Well, preacher, it's just one relationship. Well, preacher, it's just one sin. Well, preacher, it's just one compromise. But before it was over, it hadn't been just one. In fact, it had consumed their life. Lot was a sojourning man. But then we learn from our passage, not only was Lot saved and was Lot sojourning, but Lot was stuck. 
You see, when we come to chapter number 19, we don't find a man that's there for a brief visit. Rather, we find that he, that Lot moved his family into Sodom. He wound up stuck in this place. Can I say that there's been a great many believers. They didn't intend on throwing their life away. They didn't intend on letting the devil get the mastery of their life. They didn't intend on sin consuming them. But nevertheless, they found themselves stuck in sin, stuck in unrighteousness, unwilling to turn around and walk away from the very thing they said they could walk away from at any time. When I read this passage of Scripture, and here's what I want to preach to you on this morning. I want you to look at verse 16. The fire is about to fall. The angels are pleading with him. His family has abandoned him. The mob would uh, slay him. Lot has nothing left for him in Sodom. And yet verse 16 says, And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. While he lingered. You may be sitting here today and saying, Preacher, I've taken a little detour into sin in my life. But I know it won't last forever and I have no intention of staying in this sin. Can I remind you that Lot said the same thing? You might say, well, Preacher, it's just a little excursion into disobedience. I'm not intending on casting off my commitment to Christ. I'm not intending on giving up on church. I'm not intending on giving up living for the Lord. But can I remind you, Lot said the very same thing. And yet here in this passage, while the fire is about to fall, we find him lingering in the land of Sodom. How did this happen in Lot's life? Well, listen, in Genesis 13, we read about how he wound up there. The Bible tells us that when Abraham and Lot, after coming out of Egypt from a short trip into Egypt that had its own story that's worthy of preaching on, that God had enlarged and enriched both of these men. They come back to the land of Canaan. And when they get there, they find that they have too much uh, means and too much livestock to be able to live close to one another. Their herdsmen are, are fighting one with another. And they can't keep their stock separated. And the land that they're living in is just too narrow for them. And so Abraham goes to his nephew Lot and he says, Listen, the land we're in is too straight for us. We need to depart. But why don't you go and pick a place to live? And then I will pick a place to live and we can still visit one another. We can still fellowship. We can still help protect each other, but we'll have the room for our families to live. The Bible says that when faced with that choice, this is what Lot did. Genesis 13, 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere where the Lord before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him, all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. How did Lot get stuck there? Notice a few things, and then we'll move on. Notice, number one, he looked to Sodom. The Bible says he lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. Can I tell you something I've learned in my life? If I can keep my eyes under control, it keeps my hands under control. If I can keep my eyes under control, it keeps my feet under control. If I can keep my eyes under control, it keeps my mouth under control. And in fact, a great many of the problems that you and I have had in our lives is because we first cast our glance or maybe our thoughts towards a sin that we knew that we had no business partaking in. 
He looked to Sodom. And then after he looked to Sodom, he longed for Sodom. He saw a value in Sodom. And there was value in Sodom from a temporal perspective. The Bible says he saw the well-watered plains. He is a, a cattleman. He is a shepherd. He is a livestock man. He has cattle. And he looks and he says, this would be a wonderful place to raise cattle. One old preacher said it may be a wonderful place to raise cattle, but it was a terrible place to raise kids. Can I say that often in our lives it begins by looking at sin, but number two, it then goes to longing for sin. There's not one of us that is not at times faced with temptation. I would say the simple act of being faced with temptation is no sin unto itself. But the Bible says this, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. For it to draw us away, we have to entertain it and we have to give it a place in our life. And that's what Lot did. He looked to Sodom, he longed for Sodom, and finally he lived in Sodom. It didn't take long. The Bible tells us uh, that he had a house in Sodom. I have more to say about that here in a moment. And I don't want to trip over my message before I preach it. But this is not a man that intended to stay. But now he's pouring footings and he's building a frame. Here's a man that had no intention of ever being there. In fact, the Bible describes how that, that he, he dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. It doesn't even seem like initially he wanted to live in Sodom. You see, it wasn't Sodom that he wanted. It was the well-watered plains. But you couldn't have one without the other. Hey, what a reminder that we can't enjoy the pleasures of sin without having to face the price of sin in our lives. And it didn't take long. He was living there in this place of wisdom. Wickedness. Not only did he live there, but he lingered there. When it came time that there was nothing left for him, and can I tell you, this is how the devil works in your life. He will take a life of beauty and of value and of richness, and he will strip mine everything out of it that he can. And when there's nothing left of you but the husk, he'll leave you there in your brokenness and in your despair. And here's Lot. Everything of beauty and value has been robbed of him. He only has left his wife and his two daughters. And still he can't pull himself away from the sin that he has engaged himself with. He lingered in this place of Sodom. What do we learn in this passage from Lot's lingering in Sodom? I want you to notice three things and then we'll be done. I want you to think with me for a moment about what he looked for while he lingered. wonder why he lingered in that place in the first place. I mean, I don't know about you. There's been times I've walked into situations. You ever walked into a situation and immediately understood that you did not belong in that situation? There's been times that I've stepped into a situation and it was just like somebody poured ice cold water over me and I knew in that moment this is not where a believer belongs. I have no business in this place. I have no testimony in this place. I have no responsibility in this place. And I have no opportunity in this place. And you would think, man, you'd think Lot. Here's a man. He came from paganism. He knows what paganism is. And he walks into this place. And you'd think he would have stopped and said, Whoa, this is not where I belong. But instead, he was looking for something. And can I say this? Most people, when they get in sin, they're looking for something. They've grown dissatisfied with Christ, not because he doesn't satisfy, but because they've gotten fleshly appetites that don't crave Christ. And they're looking for something. What was he looking for? I would say, number one, he was looking for prosperity. It's apparent from our text that that's the case. In chapter 13, he he chose it because of the well-watered plains. But can I remind you that not only brought him to the veil of Siddim, but it was prosperity itself that seems to have brought him into Sodom itself. It's interesting. Verse number two, I don't know if you noticed it, but remember that 
Abraham and his family were to be tent-dwelling people. God had called them to be pilgrims, to be sojourners. And even through Abraham's long, illustrious life, which, by the way, Abraham was a wealthy man. Abraham could have bought, built house after house after house. He could, I mean, listen, he could have had one in Pigeon Forge. He could have had one over at the Myrtle Beach. Amen. I mean, he could have had houses. He was a man of means and of wealth. But till the day he died, Abram dwelt in a tent. Why? Because God had instructed him to do so. It was a picture of the fact that this world is passing away and God's people are a temporary fixture of it. Verse number two. Whenever the angels come into Sodom, this is what Lot says. Behold, now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house and tarry all night. Evidently, something changed in Lot's value system. And now it's no longer about a roof over your head. It's no longer about shelter from the storm. But it's about building a life such as it is in this place. I tell you, there's been a lot of believers that the main Achilles heel of their commitment to Christ was a desire for prosperity. I understand we're living in a world we're all broke now. Amen. It's wonderful. Isn't it wonderful how the government has just leveled the playing field? We're all poor. Amen. And except for them. Um, but we're, we're all broke now. Amen. But, uh, you know, one of the great dangers is often those that don't have money want it more than those that have it. It becomes an obsession in their life. It becomes a pursuit in their life. Can I tell you, God doesn't begrudge you getting a paycheck. God doesn't begrudge you uh, having good things and nice things. I mean, God's so good and gracious to His people. God's blessed me with things that I don't need. I don't just mean things I don't deserve. I don't deserve any of it. He's blessed me with things I don't even need, just things that I want in my life. God's not against you having things, but I will tell you this. God's not against you having things, but the devil is very much for you wanting things. And in your life, when it becomes about the pursuit of prosperity, the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of riches, hey, James says that it's a snare to the soul, that it is a pitfall, that it is a pit to fall into in our lives. And you need to be careful in your life about allowing the dollar, whatever that is, to reign supreme. I think he was looking for prosperity. I think probably he was looking for pleasure when he went to Sodom. Now, I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. We don't have one scriptural example of Lot doing anything immoral while he's in Sodom other than being in Sodom. And I think we could probably characterize him being willing to sacrifice his daughters to the mob as being scummy, if nothing else. But we have no example. We don't have any example of him visiting prostitutes or, or cheating on his wife or getting drunk or, or engaging in some kind of debauchery. But I just want to ask you a simple question. Why would you be in Sodom if that's not what you were interested in? Why would you be in Sodom if that's not what you were looking for? You know why there's some places that believers don't belong? Because there ain't nothing for them there. Some of y'all was told when you was young that nothing good ever happens after 10 o'clock at night. You ever heard that? You told that? Your parents told you that? My parents stay up till 2 in the morning now. I don't know what they're doing, amen, but they told us that. Of course, they're at home watching TV, but... You know what the idea is? It's not that nothing happens after 10. It's nothing good happens after 10. The idea being there's nothing for you out there except trouble. And can I say this? Hey, there was things happened in Sodom, but there wasn't nothing good happened in Sodom. There were things that were happening in Sodom. It was a happening place. In fact, as we read this passage, this mob, you know, you know what's going on in Sodom at midnight? This mob was gathering to abuse and to destroy and to kill and to murder. And Lot almost lost his life in the middle of the night in the city of Sodom. You know, he should have never been there in the first place. But here's what I think. I think he went there looking for pleasure. 
I think he went there to live a life he couldn't live around Uncle Abraham. I think he went there to do things he couldn't do around his family and around his uncle and around his his uh, herdsmen. I think he, he got in there in a place where he could do anything that he wanted. And sin, it certainly has pleasure, though only for a season, and it's never worth the price. I think he was looking for prosperity. I think he was looking for pleasure. I think he was looking for position. It's interesting. Verse number 1 tells us where they found him. It says, there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Now, that might not mean a lot to you or to me, uh, but one, it tells me even, even Sodom had sense enough to have a wall. Amen. But, but it also, <laughs> sitting in the gate of a city implied more than just a physical location. The gate of the city was the place where magistrates would carry out justice. It was the place where people would come and they would have their complaints heard. They would come and there would be some official that would be sitting there and they would come before them and explain all of the things that happened unto them, all of the injustices they had suffered, and then the person would issue justice from the gate of the city. You'll find this over and over again in the Old Testament times that David came and sat in the gate of Jerusalem to receive the people and to hear their judgment and to hear their complaints and to hear what uh, was going on in their life. When the Bible says he sat in the gate of the city, it's not just talking about a geographic location, it's talking about a civic position. And it's saying he became a prominent man in that place. I'm firmly convinced of this, and you can get upset if you want. That's fine. It doesn't bother me. But I'm convinced of this, that you, to be a politician, you either have to be a supreme statesman or a gross individual. And we ain't got no more statesmen. Because I've often, I've talked to my wife about this. I've said, you know, why would you want to tell other people what to do with their life? And maybe I just have this perspective as a pastor. I mean, I've learned people are relentlessly out of control and do what they want no matter what. But I've often thought to myself, what what kind of person would you have to be to wake up in the morning saying, I want to control what people say on the Internet. I, I, I want to make people pay taxes. That's what I want to do with my life. What a miserable profession that must be. And And I think about Lot in this place, and he's wanting to exercise judgment. What motivates people like that? Well, generally a lust and hunger for power gives them some sense of importance and some sense of control and some sense of value. And I think to myself, what would make Lot? He don't he don't belong in the Vale of Siddim. He don't belong in the city of Sodom. And he sure don't belong in the gate of the city. What would make him go and dwell in this place? It must be he sought to have a position in life. This is part of that buying into the world system. I was reading just the other day where Christ spoke about the disciples and they came to him and they began to ask who is the greatest among them. And he said, the Gentiles, the princes of the Gentiles, they seek after such things. But ye shall not be so. For whosoever will be greatest among you, let him be the least. And whosoever will be Lord of all, let him be servant of all. And I read that verse, man, and it hit me like a thunderbolt, more than I've ever really seen it. That's not just talking about our philosophy in the church and how we interact with each other. I mean, it's certainly true we should seek to serve one another. That's talking about a greater principle for how believers live their life. That our focus and goal in life is not to be to try to claw our way above everybody else. We have a higher calling. We have a more important vocation. We have a greater purpose than that. And you think about so much of society. 
It is geared towards the concept of of trying to get people to climb above and claw above. Well, I mean, from the time a child is is placed into grade school, from a little child it becomes a competition. Who can color inside the lines? I still can't color inside the lines. Who doesn't eat the most glue? Who doesn't, you know, it becomes a competition. They put them on a grading level. They put them on a grading system. And their entire life becomes a matter of measurement. And everything that they incorporate and everything that they interact with is, did you meet this place? Did you meet this level? you got to maintain this GPA. you got to maintain this level. you got to maintain this intelligence. And they go their whole life through that. Then they graduate, go to college, and they've got to go to the best college. Why do they have to go to the best college? Because they have to be better than the people around You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this. There is a value system that Sodom had and Lot bought into it. There's more important things in your life than whether you're better than the person next to you. There's more important things in life than whether you have a bigger bank account than your neighbor. There's more important things in life than whether you have higher academic credentials than the people around you. And by the way, I'm not against I'm not against uh, wealth that God gives. I'm certainly not against education that God sanctions. Not against any of those things. And listen, I'm not some starry-eyed lunatic that thinks we live in a world that can't be measurable. I understand that, but I'm saying there is a philosophy of the world around us that the greatest thing you can be in life is better than somebody else. And that's not true. The greatest thing you can be in life is what God created you to be. And wherever you measure up in whatever other metric is completely irrelevant. But here's Lot, and he has ceded his life to the world's philosophy. And now what it's about is him getting preeminence above those around him. I think he was looking for prosperity. I think he was looking for pleasure. I think he was looking for position. And I think he was looking for praise. I think the thing that bothered him more than anything is when they criticized him when he was standing at the door. This man came in to be a sojourner. And will he indeed be a judge over us? In other words, what were they doing? They said that because they knew it would bother him. They knew that he would be bothered at the prospect that anybody would think lesser of him. I will tell you, we have a testimony, and that testimony should be maintained. And if you live your life just seeking to thumb your nose at everyone around you, you are going to have a wonderful, quiet, lonely life. Because pretty soon people won't want to be around somebody like that. But I will tell you this, it will be a great liberty in your life and a great freedom when you learn how to care more about what God thinks about you than what anyone else does. When your life becomes about giving praise to Him and not getting praise to self, you'd be amazed how that will free you and how that will give you peace. I I noticed what he looked for while he lingered. Number two, I want to say something about what he lost while he lingered. It cost him something to live in Sodom. It cost him something to be in that place. What did it cost him? What did he lose while he was there? I would say, number one, he lost his treasures in Sodom. He goes into Sodom, a wealthy man, and he leaves a refugee with nothing in his hands. You know why that happened? I would say, number one, it was because he was invested in Sodom. Uh, the Bible says he built a house there. I wonder where he got that money to do that. Could it be that the blessings that God had given him and his uncle Abraham when they came out of Egypt, when God had enriched and enlarged them, he traded the richness of those blessings for the currency of Sodom so that he could build a house there and have a life in that place? Here's the danger. You invest in this world system. It was not, he wasn't just invested in Sodom. It was destroyed in Sodom. He built there, so it burnt up there. Can I tell you one day, hey, listen, the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but whosoever doeth the will of God abideth forever. If you spend all your time investing in this world, guess what? That's got bad long-term interest. 
It's not going to pay off. I know, listen, I know our flesh is not one iota convinced about eternity, but we're going to step three seconds inside of it, and a lot of us are going to weep and wail and gnash our teeth at what we have wasted and what we have cast away in our life. He lost his treasures in Sodom. Not only that, he lost his time in Sodom. I don't know that we think about this often. We don't know how long that lot was there. It would appear from the text, this is my supposition, you can take it for what it is, probably a year or two he lived there. You think about the time that he was taken captive with the other uh, people of, of Sodom and carried away in that battle and what would have entailed and ensued. You think about the time it would take to buy or build a house in that place. You think about the time it would take for him to situate himself to become uh, the person that sits in the gate of the city. I mean, probably at minimum a couple of years. I don't know. But I do know this, that every second that he lived in Sodom was wasted time. It was a wicked season of his life. It was a time when he was doing things that would forever shame him. And to this day, the the intriguing truth about Lot's life is not the idea that he was lost, but the idea that he was saved. What does that say about his time in Sodom? It characterizes him. If you ask any child, who is Lot, that is sat in Sunday school, they'd say, Lot's the nephew of Abraham. He lived in Sodom. And he lived, he left paganism and went with Abraham. But that's not what we talk about. Instead, we talk about all the things that defined his life. It was a wicked season, but it was a wasted season. It's not just the things he did with his time. It's the things he didn't do with his time. We'll learn here in a moment that he had opportunity to be a witness to some degree to his family even during that season. He wasted that time. And I will tell you this, there's no greater waste of your time than sin. There's no greater waste of your time than sin. Talk to some of these people with a little snow on top and ask them whether sin was a valuable expenditure of their time. There's a great many of them would tell you, I'd give anything if I could get back that time that I wasted living in sin. Time is a funny thing. You don't get any of it back. We get a fixed amount predetermined only by God Himself, and we don't know how much time we have, but we do know this. It's not near enough to do the things we wish we could. Why then? And I'm guilty. I I don't know about you. Maybe I'm just preaching to me, man, but I'm guilty in my life of taking the precious time, the life that was bought at Calvary, and wasting it, squandering it with excursions into rebellion and disobedience and into sin. And what greater crime is there than to waste the life that Christ's life paid for? What a waste it was. He lost his treasures in Sodom. He lost his time in Sodom. He lost his testimony in Sodom. He lost his testimony with the lost there. He warns them, do not this wickedness, he says. But they don't listen to him. He warns them, the Lord's going to destroy the city. But they're uninterested. And in fact, the only exchange that we have between Lot and the lost men of Sodom is when he's willing to sacrifice his daughters, still under his roof, still under his authority, still under his stewardship, to their degeneracy and debauchery and to death to avoid having to face the consequences of his sin. I will tell you this. Had Sodom continued. We know it did not. But of all the men that could have been missionaries there. Lot would have been the worst. He lived in such a manner in front of them. That he lost all credentials. And all credibility. We bemoan all the time. How the world don't want to pay attention to Christianity. But I wonder if it's because when they did. They noticed a trend. They noticed people who were shallow and superficial in their faith. 
People who embraced a cultural form of Christianity that never reached deeper than the suit of clothes they put on, that never penetrated to the heart and changed the actions that didn't govern and guide a person's life. And they looked and said, well, I'd get the same thing down at the bowling club. Why would I go to church to get that? Hey, listen, he lost his testimony with the lost. He also lost his testimony with his loved ones. We study this passage carefully. We learn this about even the people under his own home, that they didn't believe in his God. So, preacher, how can you possibly know that? Well, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> because in chapter number 18, we have an interesting, and we won't read all of it. I'll just read one verse from But we have an interesting interaction between God and Abraham. God goes by Abraham's tent door in Genesis 18 and visits with him and has supper with him. And afterwards, the Bible tells us that God looks around and says, I'm not going to hide from Abraham the thing which I'm doing. He's righteous. He'll follow me. He'll raise his family for me. And so he then begins to tell Abraham that he plans on uh, on destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's troubled by this because he knows he's got a nephew living out in sin and living out in Sodom. And so he begins to pray to the Lord and, and he begins sequentially asking God to spare the city of Sodom. He says in verse 24 of that chapter, Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place? For the fifty righteous that are therein, that be far from thee. The Lord said, if I find in Sodom fifty righteous, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Abraham does a little math, takes his shoes off, begins to count, and get nervous about his request. And he says in verse 28, Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty. Wilt thou destroy all the city for lack of five? In other words, what if there's forty-five? And the Lord said, I'll not destroy it if that many are found there. He spake again, said, Peradventure, there shall be 40. And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And on and on it goes until verse number 32. And this is what Abraham says. He said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Peradventure, 10 shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. Now, that may not seem interesting to you, but I want you to stop and think about what we know about the makeup of Lot's family from Genesis chapter number 19. We understand that Lot's family would have had to have numbered at least Ten individuals. There would have been Lot and his wife. And then the angel speaks of sons. So there must be at least two sons. And then speaks of at least four daughters. Because there are two sons-in-laws. So there must be two daughters to go with those sons-in-law. Because most people won't take a son-in-law unless they've got a daughter that they married them to. And then there's two daughters that have never known man. And that leave Sodom with Lot and his wife. I'll tell you why I think Abraham stopped then. I think he did the math. And he thought, surely Lot has at least won his children and their spouses to Christ. Surely, even in that place, he's been some semblance of salt and some semblance of light. But the sad truth is, he couldn't reach his family any more than he could reach the citizens of Sodom. You know why he was living the same life in front of them? He was living in front of the people of Sodom. And in many ways, he was living a worse life for they knew what he should have been doing and they knew what he wasn't doing. You know, the sad reality is this. He got out of Sodom, but he had at least two sons, two daughters and two son-in-laws that didn't. We learn as we go a little further on that his daughters engage in similar debauchery after they get out. Of Sodom. In other words, that he got them out of Sodom, but he couldn't get Sodom out of them. And here's a man 
who at the end of the day, the only person in that family of ten that we can say definitively knew God was Lot himself. We can't say it about anyone else. Lot is a man who lost his family in Sodom. You'll lose your family in Sodom. You'll lose your family in the world system if you plug into it. It's happening all around us. All the time. Generation after generation. It's happening. People, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. All the time. Generation. And some of them get out. Praise God. But some of them are still back there in Sodom. Say, preacher, how could you avoid that and never go there in the first place? That's how you avoid it. They didn't believe in his God. They also didn't receive his warning. Verse 14, Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. They thought it was a joke. They didn't think it was a joke because of what he was saying. They thought it was a joke because of how he'd been living. Because what he was saying didn't match how he was living. The world has a wicked sense of humor. And they won't expect you. They, they won't. Mm. The world won't understand you being a hypocrite. No more than God will. The world won't look and say, oh, yeah, all that. They just, they don't, you know, grain of salt, you know, tongue in cheek. It's not really. The world won't do that. They expect you to say what you mean and mean what you say. And they expect this thing of Christ in your life to have actually made a difference. And Lot lost his testimony in Sodom. Notice not only what he looked for while he lingered and and what he lost while he lingered, but finally, and I'm done, I want you to think about what was learned while he lingered. What did he learn about the Lord and what did he learn about that place? I would say, number one, he learned about God's prudence. Verse 15, listen to what the angel says. Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. You know what he learned while he lingered there? He learned that God knows best and that God is always right. He learned that the Lord had told him, you stay out of Sodom, Lot, or it'll destroy you. And he hadn't listened to God. And here's what he learned. He learned the Lord was right. You know one of the sad lessons you learn when you have an excursion into sin and into this world system? You learn God is right about it. I would say he learned about God's prudence. I'd say, number two, he learned about God's priorities. You remember what the angel said in verse 17? came to pass when they brought them forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. He didn't say, get to China. Get get the gold bars. Get the buckets of food. He said, get your life and get out of here. He says, grab your wife, your daughters, and leave. Let all else be burned up. Don't worry about the house lot. Don't worry about the money lot. Don't worry about the cattle lot. Your life is what matters more than anything else. Here's what we learn from this passage. We learn God prioritizes our life above all else. God would rather you have a godly life than anything else and a joyful life. He learned about God's priorities. He learned about God's patience. Verse 16, while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him without the city. You better be glad I'm not God. I'd have said, just burn up in Sodom then, Lot. Go ahead and stay here. I'm glad I'm not God. I'm glad for my sake and for yours. Because he learned about the Lord's patience. He learned the Lord was patient with a man that he had no reason to be patient with and that the man had no right to expect patience for. But God was merciful. 
I know you don't think it. You just think it's some loud mouth preacher up preaching too long on a Sunday morning. But can I tell you that this truth being contained in God's word and it being declared to you this morning is the mercy of God. Not because I'm any kind of instrument or any kind of emblem of of that mercy, but just the fact that it's in your Bible and the fact that God woke you up, brought you to church and set you in that pew where you could be reminded that if you don't get yourself and your family out of Sodom, it'll destroy you. Is not God hating you. It's God helping you. It's not Him limiting you. It is Him loving you. It is not Him railing on you. It is Him rescuing you. It is His mercy to you this morning. He learned about God's patience. And finally, verse 16, he learned about God's process. The Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Here's what he learned. There's times God will grab you by the hand and drag you out of Sodom if that's what's necessary to save your life. There are times that God will take you by force if he has to, to spare you of the destruction that would come upon you. There's a couple ways I think God does that. I think sometimes God does that through circumstances. And there's been times that, hey, listen, the the, the citizens of the country abandon you. The hogs won't share their slop with you. The money's run out. God just lets the, the hardness. Hey, the way of the transgressor is hard. He lets the hardness of sin sober you. But there's a more precious, more immediate, more nuanced way that I think He does it. He doesn't just do it through circumstances. He does it through His Spirit. And you know what that is this morning as God has smote your heart about some area of your life that you know is not right with the Lord. You know what that is? That's Him grabbing the hand of your heart and trying to drag you out of that disobedience. God's trying to to coax you, trying to convince you. Hey, He's trying to coerce you if He can to get you to recognize and realize that you can live in Sodom and you can linger in Sodom, but if you do, you'll burn up there just the same. It'll destroy your life. It'll destroy your family. It'll burn up everything good and of value from your life and leave you with nothing but ashes behind. Hey, you say, preacher, you you ever been there? Oh, yeah, I've had my trips into sin, just like you have, to my eternal shame. And I don't say this to cast scorn upon you. I just say it to say this morning, if that's you, don't linger there. Instead, get out by the mercy and grace of God. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. I want you to have an opportunity to talk to the Lord about something in your life this morning. Preacher, what would I talk about? We'll talk about what He dealt with you about. Talk about what He spoke to you about. Some area, some matter in your life that God stirred your heart over. Won't you meet Him in the altar? Won't you confess that thing before Him? Ask His forgiveness, ask His grace, ask His strength to turn away and yielded unto Him. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I love You. And I ask it in Christ's name.